As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 33, Revivals and Regents. In the year 1987 BCE, Egypt's royal court was flourishing and the country was stable. Amenemhat I had taken power in a short civil war, pushing aside two competitors in Upper Egypt and Lower Nubia, thus claiming the dual kingship. To secure his assumption, and legitimize his admittedly violent seizure of power, Amenemhat had ordered the composition of a lengthy work of fiction. The prophecy of Nefertiti, which I recounted in episode 32, set the stage for the king's rule as one prophesied since the early 4th dynasty. Now, the king took his program of Old Kingdom revivalism to the next level. After abandoning plans for a royal tomb at Thebes, the king decided to commission a new burial at a previously unused site. This area, known today as El Lisht, became the cemetery of choice for Amenemhat and his son, Senusaret I. But rather than initiate one of the temple tombs favoured by 11th dynasty rulers, Amenemhat decided something new was needed. Well, By something new, I mean something old, for Amenemhat had chosen to revive the Old Kingdom ideal of pyramid building. At Lisht, which is about 35 kilometers south of Saqqara, the royal surveyors laid plans for a new pyramid that would be 55 meters high. It was to be made of a mixture of mud brick and limestone, which would help to save effort and time in the construction process. The result was not exactly what you'd call ideal. The pyramid was badly eroded even in the 22nd dynasty, approximately 1,000 years after its construction. Now, that is pretty impressive by most standards, but in a country already home to the Great Pyramids of Giza and the Steppe Pyramid of Saqqara and the Sphinx, it's a B- at best. Sadly, Despite his incredibly significant position in the history of the Middle Kingdom, Amenemhat is not remembered as much of a builder. By the time of the 22nd dynasty, the pyramid itself had become the backdrop to a small residential village built in its vicinity. To cap off the natural destruction visited on it over about a thousand years of wind and erosion, locals had taken away blocks in order to build houses, and to construct small workshops for their local industry. What was this industry? Well, archaeologists sifting through the remains of this village found various jars and copper bowls and storerooms, all the standard material you'd expect in a residential area. But they also began to uncover large quantities of glass, brightly coloured and finely made. The glass itself came out in such large amounts that the early excavation reports suggest 
that the pyramid town had become a local centre of glass manufacturing. A sort of cottage industry built around the pyramid of Amenemhat I. Human burials were also found in the base of some of these storerooms, a sort of testament to how sites will be repurposed multiple times throughout history. The area started as a tomb for Amenemhat, developed into a thriving little village, and then the town itself became a cemetery once more. Moving into the pyramid itself, the excavators found that the passageways to the burial chamber had been intentionally blocked by a series of granite slabs. These blocks, perfectly fitted to the corridors, were a formidable barrier to tomb robbery, but a sadly ineffective one. Because the pyramid was constructed on a bedrock of limestone, which is much softer than granite, robbers had simply tunnelled into the corridor walls and gone around the slabs. So much for the security system. It was a good idea, but without the proper casing around the burial chamber, the granite slabs could only deter robbery, not stop it outright. Because of this error, Amenemhat's burial chamber was long broken into and robbed. When archaeologists first entered it, they found the burial shaft filled with groundwater, a result of Nile flooding that had seeped in. The tomb itself was empty, of course, robbed of its materials long ago. Whatever goods were buried with Amenemhat were gone. So much for the burial legacy of one of Egypt's more noteworthy rulers. Having cut costs in the commissioning of pyramid building, Amenemhat doomed his burial to become the quarry for a local village, and then the centre of a local cemetery, and finally a waterlogged burial chamber, long stripped of its goods, despite a serious attempt to prevent unwanted entry. But this is all a bit unnecessarily negative. The Pyramid of Amenemhat, and the context of its construction, do have many fascinating aspects worth noting. For one thing, the pyramid itself is almost a composite of earlier tombs. To add an extra potent level of symbolism to the project, the builders reused blocks from the pyramids of earlier kings. And not just minor kings either, but heavyweights like Khufu, Khafre, Unas, and Pepe II. Older masonry from the causeways of those pyramids had long crumbled, and the royal agents took the decorated blocks from these sites to insert into the temple walls and the structure of the new tomb at Lisht. In doing this, they connected the tomb of Amenemhat with his notable ancestors of the Old Kingdom. For a king so desperate to be associated with an earlier, more glorious age, this was probably the best possible way to protect his own legacy. And the reason it's one of the best is because it didn't rely on the survival of his temple, or a stealer to convey propaganda, but rather it incorporated the potency and magic of carved relief into the tomb itself. While the blocks themselves weren't necessarily religious, the power of their imagery and writing filtered into the tomb of Amenemhat, enhancing the connection between the king and the divine soul of Rey. The blocks only survive in small fragments today, but the few remaining fragments depict scenes such as gazelles and farmland animals, ships rowing on the Nile, officials bringing offerings to the king, and archers in battle, accompanied by rows of soldiers. 
These probably came from the causeways of the Giza and Saqqara pyramids, and have been used by some scholars to make hypothetical reconstructions of the scenes as they were originally laid out. So in that respect, we owe Amenemhat an enormous debt. While the original causeways have long since been destroyed, the reuse of these blocks in the pyramid of El Lisht preserved traces of the scenes for modern scholars. A silver lining within the pyramid, so to speak. Now, so far I've talked about the pyramid in a pretty isolated context, without really explaining the reason that Amenemhat chose to emphasise speed over quality. The decision to build with a mixture of mud brick and stone may have saved some time, but it also made the pyramid less durable and stable. So why on earth would Amenemhat take this approach to a monument designed to protect his eternal soul? Well, the answer is twofold. On the one hand, he was not a young man when he came to power. He had already served as the vizier of Nebtawi Re Montuhotep IV, so he was probably at least in his late twenties or early thirties by the time he took the throne. Life expectancy alone encouraged a hasty process of construction, in order to ensure that the burial chamber was ready by the time he died. Second, and perhaps of more immediate day-to-day -day concern, was the fact that Amenemhat had decided to construct a new royal residential city near to the pyramid itself. This community would be Amenemhat's primary home and the centre of his administration. In effect, he had established a new capital city for Egypt. The new capital would be named Ichitawi Amenemhat, which translates to Amenemhat seizes the two lands. It's a curiously aggressive name for a king who had consciously styled himself as a saviour figure in the prophecy of Nefertiti. I would have thought Sema or Uniter would have worked better than Ichi to seize. But it just seems more benevolent, doesn't it? Then again, Sema Tawi had been one of the throne names of Montuhotep II, and if we've learnt anything from episode 32, it's that Amenemhat was extremely eager to distinguish himself from the 11th dynasty. We can call it aggressive branding. The king's imagery emphasised strength and power, demonstrating to all and sundry that the new king was one who came to rule by a might-makes-right doctrine. A gutsy move, perhaps, but for a king with no blood claim to the throne, it was possibly the best available move after the short civil war which followed the death of Montuhotep IV. Beyond this, the decision had symbolic value as well. If we hearken back to the early episodes of this podcast and the end of Dynasty V, you may remember that for the Egyptians, one of the significant hallmarks of a shift in the historical record was the founding or movement of the royal household. When Dynasty VI began, the capital shifted slightly from Memphis, and thus a new era was recognised. Now, Amenemhat made it clear to all of his subjects that the end of the House of Entef marked not just a political break, but a symbolic and an administrative break as well. The capital of Ichitawi would serve as the administrative heart of the Nile Valley, a northern capital for the new ruling household. 100 years ago, historians thought that this move was connected to a desire for security against Asiatic incursions 
or attacks from Palestine. This has now been discarded, mostly because there is almost no evidence for Asiatic locals outside of the Eastern Delta, and most of the evidence that does exist dates from the early dynastic period, when Egypt was far less territorially secure. An alternative reading to this, and one that I find much more persuasive, relates back to the end of the First Intermediate Period. If we think back to episode 26, and the reconquest of Egypt, we will remember that the House of Intef expanded from Thebes, and only ended the war when they recaptured Memphis and ended the bloodline of the House of Keti. Now, decades later, it is not clear just how pacified Lower Egypt really was. Amenemhat, before he became king, had served as the vizier in this region, governing it in the name of Montuhotep IV. It is possible, though of course uncertain, that Amenemhat's power base was actually stronger in the north, or that this region remained somewhat insecure under Theban rule. Moving northward to a new settlement named for his military prowess may have enabled Amenemhat to keep a much stronger grip on power in this region of the country. Of course, it's rather speculative, but it would not be surprising if this is the reason for the poor masonry. At the very least, the need to pour resources into the new capital would justify cutting a few corners on the pyramid. And I mean, it wasn't like it was a total failure. The pyramid is still there, technically. Sort of. Partly. Well, it is a pile of rubble, but that's better than nothing. Now, returning to the realm of politics, we arrive at Amenemhat's 20th year on the throne. I have skipped a few here because, quite frankly, there is not much to tell. So around 1970 BCE, after leading a few punitive expeditions into the Sinai, and crushing Bedouin tribes, and then strengthening the delta forts originally conceived by Sankare Montuhotep III, Amenemhat finally began to take greater consideration for the future, and that of his kingdom. In regnal year 20, the king's family had grown significantly, with two wives, three daughters, and one son filling his household. Amenemhat began to think about the legacy he was to leave behind. His eldest son, Senusaret, cannot have been much older than 17 or so at this time. Perhaps, feeling that age was beginning to pull at him, Amenemhat decided it was time for the prince to gain the proper experience of governance and rule. To do this, he did what to the best of our knowledge, no ruler had done before. He appointed Senusaret as his co-ruler. Now, I know that a couple of episodes ago, I mentioned how co-regencies were mostly hypothetical, and little evidence actually existed for them. Well, that was preemptive on my part. Sorry. Let me retcon and say that what I meant was that a few co-regencies are largely theoretical and the ones I'm talking about are from the 18th and 19th dynasties, in the New Kingdom, which is a period about which I, personally, am far more knowledgeable. For the Middle Kingdom, okay, we have evidence for at least two co-regencies, 
and that evidence is pretty solid. So, my mistake. No harm, no foul. Anyway, for the first time in Egypt's history, the throne was occupied by two individuals at the same time, both ruling together peaceably over a united Nile Valley. For convenience, I'm going to simply continue referring to the dates according to the regnal years of Amenemhat. Otherwise, it's just confusing. But since Amenemhat appointed Sennusaret as co-king in about year 20, it is pretty easy to figure out that year 25 of Amenemhat equals year 25 of Sennusaret, and so on. Sennusaret, whose name translates to the man belonging to the goddess Usaret, was given command of military affairs, for which the young and vigorous prince, sorry, king, proved an excellent choice. It was likely Senusaret who, in the 29th year of Amenemhat's reign, led the grand campaign into Nubia, which kick-started the first true phase of an Egyptian empire. The new co-king pushed Egyptian forces down to the third cataract of the Nile, and together with his father's oversight, began establishing a chain of border fortresses between Elephantine and Semna, a region near the second cataract. Now, this set of border fortresses up and down the Nile marks for many historians the first time that the Egyptians really established a true system of governance over Nubian territory. During the Old Kingdom, rulers had sent expeditions. These expeditions had journeyed deep into the southern reaches of the Nile Valley, but they had always come home without establishing any permanent presence. The building of fortresses suggests permanence, a desire to stay in the region and exert military control over the territory. These centres were slowly developed over the reign of Senusaret and his successors, until they became mammoth fortified constructions, capable of resisting most foreign threats. The fortresses, eight of them in total, eventually covered a territory of approximately 60 kilometres. Each fort was within visible distance of the next, so that communications could be easily conveyed from region to region. In this way, any raids coming from nomadic desert tribes would be known up and down the chain very quickly. Each fort was also on the same side of the Nile, the western side, meaning that each overseer of the troops could simply dispatch a runner to alert the neighbouring forts. The system seems to have worked quite well, for the Egyptians maintained this network of fortresses for centuries following Amenemhat's reign. Although the forts occasionally fell to foreign occupation, they were always reoccupied, becoming the bastions of Egyptian rule in northern Nubia. So, as the 12th dynasty really began to assert its military muscle, a muscle fueled by the resurgent economy of the 11th dynasty, I might add, they began to aggressively dominate the territory of northern Nubia. But they didn't conquer the whole region. Remember Kerma, that small localised royal culture which appeared in Nubia during the late Old Kingdom? Well, the Kermans are still around, and still governing their own territory as they see fit. In fact, Kerma is actually thriving 
and it's thought by some historians that the establishment of these fortresses was to protect Egypt from raids from Kerma itself. Now that might be going a little far, but it's certainly likely that trade routes continued to connect the Kingdom of Egypt and the southern Nubian regions. That being said, not much material evidence exists from the early Middle Kingdom to prove the existence of extensive or frequently used trade routes from Kerma to Egypt. But whatever the exact reason, domination, protection, or both, the fortresses were here to stay. And with that, the first of three campaigns conducted in Nubia by Sinusaret was completed. What next for the young co-regent? In year 29 of Amenemhat's reign, year 9 for Sinusaret, the lands of Libya were singled out for subjugation. This policy was likely intended to protect Egyptian communities in the western oases, or simply for plunder and booty. Senusaret was dispatched at the head of an army to deal with these tribes and protect the caravan routes which stretched westward from the Nile Valley, eventually linking up with the southern trails that went into Sudan. These were ancient desert routes traversed by such legendary predecessors as Harkuf, whose expedition in the reign of Pepi II had brought exotic riches back for the young king. For Senusaret, such an expedition brought no great riches, but it would bring prestige and a greater experience of warfare. For a young king, hoping to succeed to the sole rule someday, the feat was a valuable exercise in independent command. It also represented a strong vote of confidence by Amenemhat to send his son and heir, and co-ruler, into the wilderness rather than the relatively well-known lands of the Nile Valley. It was a straightforward campaign, by all accounts, which must have proceeded early into Amenemhat's thirtieth year. No rock carvings have been discovered that attest to Senusaret's presence in the western desert, but we are informed about the very last stages of this campaign. The source for this is not a historical text, but rather a literary tale, known today as the story of Sinue. It recounts the events which occurred in the final days of this campaign, when Senusaret was returning from Libya. Quote, Even now Senusaret was returning, having carried away captives of the Chehenu, Libyans, and cattle of all kinds beyond number, and the companions of the royal estate sent to the western border to acquaint the king's son with the matters that had come to pass at the court. And the messengers met him on the road. They reached him at the time of night. Not a moment did Senusaret wait. The falcon flew away with his henchmen, not suffering the news to be known to his army. Nevertheless, message had been sent to the royal children, who were with Senusaret in this army. And one of the children had been summoned. And lo, I stood and heard the messenger's voice as he was speaking, being a little distance away, and my heart became distraught, my arms spread apart, trembling fell upon all my limbs, leaping I betook myself thence to seek myself a hiding place, and placed myself between two brambles 
so as to sunder the road from its traveller. End quote. Confused? Don't worry, you should be. The moment when Sinusaret departed his father's palace at Ichitawi would be the last time they would see each other alive. For Amenemhat's time had come to its end, and while Sinusaret was returning from the campaign, word reached him of his father's death. He set off in haste for the Nile Valley, apparently abandoning his troops, for it was traditional that a king would ascend to the throne no later than the morning after his predecessor's death. Of course, Sinusaret was already a king, co-regent with his father, but the formalities needed to be observed. He flew away from his army in order to reach the residence at Ichitawi as soon as possible. Time was of the essence, and not just for the sake of ritual and decorum. For although Amenemhat was not a young man, his death was no accident. Indeed, Sinusaret was flying home to ensure his own safety and power, for Amenemhat I had been murdered, slain in his bedchamber by his own guards. (laughs) 